Father, do ask that you would speak your words into our hearts and change our lives and make us more like Jesus because we've been here. Lord, we thank you for this great day. We thank you for your faithfulness. We ask, O oh Lord, now that uh, there be a, just a real spirit of illumination on, on your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there was this guy. He was a 65-year-old billionaire. And he got married to a beautiful 21-year-old girl. So a friend of his asked him, how did you convince her to marry you? And he said, well, I lied about my age. Friend said, what, what did you tell her? You're like 45 or something? The billionaire said, no, I told her I was 90. <laughs> Those of you that didn't get that can ask somebody after the service. But oftentimes people do what they do because of what they think they will gain by their actions. Now today we're going to continue our series on the seven churches of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. These seven churches were located in the area known as Asia Minor or today it would be modern day Turkey. I want to show you a map of uh, where they were so you kind of have a sense about what we're talking about. So you see this Asia Minor, that really is where Turkey is today. We call modern-day Turkey. And you see the seven churches there. We talked about Ephesus already two weeks ago, then Smyrna last week, and we will look at Pergamum today. Now, I want you to know these were real historic churches. And Jesus, the ascended, glorified Christ, is speaking specifically to each church through the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. But really, he speaks beyond just those churches because he ends each address by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. So the, the, Jesus wants all churches to benefit from the addresses of these seven churches. So what we do is we study each church. We try to understand what Jesus is saying to that church, specific church at that time in history. And then try to understand, really, how does that apply to us today? Now, remember also that we've learned in the book of Revelation that the goal of the devil is to try to get these seven churches to spiritually defect. He will use different strategies in each case to try to get them to defect, to turn away from being loyal to Christ. But also, we realize that the devil's goal for each of us and to our church is to try to get us to defect, to no longer be loyal to Christ. And he'll use different strategies to try to make that happen. Now, what Jesus does in each of these addresses to these seven churches is he tells them how to be overcomers, specifically how to overcome the devil's attempts to get them to defect spiritually. And so far we saw two weeks ago the first strategy the devil used against a church in Ephesus. And that strategy was to try to get them to leave their first love. And he was pretty successful at that. Many of them did leave their first love. Their first love meaning that, that, that relationship with Jesus, that love relationship with Jesus that's first in your life 
out of which everything flows. Your life flows. Your ministry flows out of abiding in him, communion with him, intimacy with him. What the devil tries to get you to do is leave that, to no longer have Christ as your first love. Why does the devil try to make that happen? Because he knows that out of that relationship will flow a powerful ministry, so he wants to stop that relationship. He knows that Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So he tries to get us apart from Jesus. So he tries to get us to have all kinds of other things that replace that first love instead of Christ. Now, if that's happened to you, we saw also the solution to the problem. Jesus says to do three things if you've left your first love. He says, remember, repent, and redo. Remember what it was like when just loving Jesus was the main thing for you. He was first. And then repent. Repent from the things you allowed to come into your life to become first ahead of him. Repent from that. Turn away from that. And then redo. Go back to that pattern that you lived where you were walking close with Jesus. Remember, repent, and redo. That's how we overcome that first strategy of the devil to try to get us to leave our first love. All right, the second strategy we saw last week, the second strategy the devil used against the church in Smyrna, and that was the strategy of intimidation and persecution. He tries to bring about persecution. He tries to get Christians to back away from loyalty to Christ because it might cost them something. It might cost them loss. It might cost them pain. It might even cost them their lives. We saw last week the way to overcome that second strategy of the devil The way to overcome the strategy of persecution and intimidation, one of the key ways is to have eternal, eternal perspective. Eternal perspective means that we realize this is not all there is. This life here and now is brief, it's fleeting, and then we have forever and ever in glory and splendor. And so we live these days in light of those days that are coming. So that means if we have an eternal perspective that we're willing to sacrifice now, because of the glory that's coming. So the devil can't intimidate us with fear of loss or pain or even death because we're not living for now. We're living for then. That's how we overcome strategy number two. Eternal perspective is key. All right, today we're going to look at a third strategy that the devil brings to try to get the church to defect. The third strategy he uses against the church in Pergamum is the strategy of trying to get the church to compromise. He tries to get the church to compromise and become like the culture that it's in. He wants the church to, you know, compromise and be no longer different enough to make a difference in the culture. He tries to get the church to compromise because he knows if we compromise in sin and we compromise in holiness, we quench the Holy Spirit power and we're no longer a threat to the devil's kingdom. Now, the two areas of compromise that he uses, the devil uses against the church in Pergamum, we're going to see in just a moment, are the areas of idolatry and sexual immorality. Now, when we're studying these churches, I've I've recommended you do Bible study. It's good to have a Bible dictionary and a Bible concordance, along with a good study Bible. Every Christian, I think, should have all three. Every Christian should have a good study Bible. I mean, if you can't afford one, fast until you can. I mean, it's worth it and a good Bible dictionary, and a good Bible concordance. 
And what you do is you look up Pergamum and you start to find out a lot about this city. The more you learn about the background of the city, more you, the more you understand why Jesus says what he says to the church in Pergamum. You know, the Roman writer Pliny called Pergamum, and I quote, by far the most distinguished city in Asia. In fact, by the time that the apostle John penned the book of Revelation, Pergamum had been Asia's capital for 250 years. It was also the center of worship for the four main gods of the Greco-Roman world. It included temples. It had a temp- the temple of Athena was there. The temple of Asclepius was there. The temple of Dionysus was there. And the temple of Zeus were all in Pergamum. Also, what you learn as you read some background about Pergamum is you realize in your reading that it was the center of the cult of emperor worship in the Roman Empire. In fact, Pergamum built the first temple devoted to an emperor worship in all of Asia in honor of the emperor Augustus in 29 BC. So, This city became the center of emperor worship in the province and Christians were in danger of harm from the the emperor worship cult. In fact, uh, in other cities, Christians were primarily in danger that one day a year that they were required by Roman law to offer sacrifices in the temple to the emperor. But in Pergamum, they were in danger every day. So first, Jesus commends the church. Let's read it. Revelation 2.13, here's the commendation. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. Remember, he's talking to the church in Pergamon. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So we find out despite the difficult circumstances, many of the believers of Pergamon were courageous. They maintained their faith in Christ, even in the midst of this persecution and intimidation. And Jesus commends them for that, commends them for staying true in the midst of all that pressure. And in the process, Jesus actually calls the city Pergamum the place where Satan's throne is. Interesting. Jesus calls it the place where Satan dwells. Now, there's been many suggestions have been offered as to why Jesus says that about Pergamum. Some some argue it's because the altar of Zeus is in Pergamum. The altar of Zeus was 120 feet by 112 feet in size. It was located with a colonnaded court leading up to it with a podium 18 feet high before you had the statue of Zeus. And we know from the scriptures that demons like to get behind idols because those who worship idols, demons want to receive that worship. So perhaps that's why it's where Satan's throne is. Others connect the reason why Jesus called it Satan's throne with the worship of the god Asclepius, who was depicted as a snake. In fact, in the temple of Asclepius, snakes were were allowed to freely roam on the floor of the temple. And those who needed healing would come to the temple and lay on the floor, hoping a snake would touch them and heal them. 
Others argue the reason Jesus calls it the place where Satan dwells and his throne is because it was a leading place in Asia for emperor worship. Well, for any of these or all of these reasons, Pergamum could understandably be called the city where Satan's throne is. In the midst of these difficult and trying circumstances, there's some believers that just hung in there. They would not worship false gods. They would not worship the emperor, and they were being persecuted heavily for it. In fact, there was probably, who, probably the leader or one of the leaders of the church in Pergamum was this man named Antipas. Antipas, according to tradition, if you were to look him up and learn more about what tradition says about what actually happened to him, it says that he was roasted to death inside a brass bowl because he would not worship the emperor. So Satan tried the same strategy here in Pergamum that he tried last week we saw in Smyrna. That is intimidation and persecution to get the church to back away from being loyal to Christ. But it doesn't work in Pergamum. They don't back away. They're willing to die. So Satan tries strategy number three. Let's read it. Revelation 2, 14 and 15. Jesus says to the church of Pergamum, but I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So now after commending these believers, Christ informs them that he has a few things against them. Some of them. He says some of them were holding to the teaching of Balaam. So what does that mean? Well, what you'd want to do is you'd want to have a Bible concordance and look up the word Balaam and see everywhere in the Bible where the word Balaam occurs. What you'd find out is you'd find out that the story that he's referring to goes back to the book of Numbers. In fact, the story of Balaam in Numbers 22, chapter 22 through chapter 25. And those of you that remember the story, remember that, that Balak, this king, was fearful of the Israelites because he saw what they did to the Amorites. So he hires Balaam, a legitimate prophet, to come and curse them. Real interesting story. So Balaam, I mean a legitimate prophet, takes the money and goes up to curse the Israelites. And as he gets ready to curse them, the Spirit of God comes upon him and he blesses them. And he cannot curse them. Out comes blessing every time he tries. So Balaam came up with another plan. Obviously, he wanted the money. Since he was unable to curse the Israelites, he decided that he could corrupt them. He could teach Balak how to tempt them to join into pagan feasts and commit acts of idolatry and immorality. Now, again, use your Bible concordance and you'd find out this whole story. You'd want to read about it and then go back and understand what Jesus is saying here. What you'd find out is that Balak was taught by Balaam to use the Moabite women to lure the Israelites into this behavior of the same godless thing that was happening in that culture and involved in pagan feasts and in pagan 
acts of immorality that were part of those feasts, sexual immorality. In fact, let me read you one verse. Numbers chapter 31, now verse 16, says, Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. So this idolatry and immorality that they were pulled into, Israelites were pulled into, destroyed their spiritual power. And that's what the devil wanted. That's why the devil wants to to tempt the church in these same ways because he wants to destroy our power. Once we compromise, we lose Holy Spirit power. The devil knows that. Now, in the case of the Israelites, God intervened. He brought judgment upon Israel. 24,000 people were killed by the Lord, including many leaders. And this drastic action from the Lord halted the Israelites' slide into immorality and idolatry. But like the Israelites who were seduced by Balaam's false teaching, some of those in the church in Pergamum were also starting to give in to this temptation that the devil was offering. In fact, the word food sacrificed to idols, that word in Greek is one word. It's a single Greek word. Now, it can refer to meat that's purchased, meat purchased at the public market that had formerly been sacrificed in a pagan temple to a pagan god. And now it's being sold in the market and they buy it. But more than likely, it's referring to Christians who are actually participating in the temple feast. Because they didn't think, you know, what was wrong with this? Probably the rationale in Christians participating in pagan feasts were they're not real gods anyway. I mean, so, I mean, I'm participating in the feast, but then it's not even a real god, so I'm not really doing idolatry because it's not even real. But also, many of them, because in the Greek and Roman world, sexual immorality was not a serious sin in their minds, many of them also participated in those feasts in the sexual immorality that was going on in the feast. See, they had to be taught that sexual sin is a serious sin. They didn't believe it. They had to be taught it. And then it says the teaching of the Nicolaitans, also, we talked about that two weeks ago, what that was. That was a basically a laxity toward being involved in the culture, and there was not a commitment to holiness. They thought it was okay to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and they were just like the culture that they lived in. But when he says the teaching of the, of the, the Nicolaitans, it also gives further definition to this teaching of Balaam, that he's actually, it was the church given in to being like the culture surrounding them, particularly in the areas of idolatry and sexual immorality. So here's the question. Now we've got to say, how does this apply to us? Does the, is the devil using this tactic against the church in America, the church in Texas, Grace Community Church? Is he using this tactic of trying to get Christians to compromise in idolatry and sexual immorality and therefore lose Holy Spirit power so we're not a threat against his kingdom? Let's think about that for a moment. How about the sin of idolatry? What are the idols of our culture here in America? What does our culture worship? Think about this. Just think about your own life for a minute. Is there anything in your life that has your affection and your allegiance and your attention 
more than Christ. See, whatever we give our affection, our allegiance, our attention, our devotion to, that if it's above, if we put that above God, then that's an idol. And I can't help but have noticed, I don't know if some of you noticed, that people have returned to packing out football stadiums way ahead of packing out churches. Our culture does have its idols. So the question is, each one of us to ask, is, do I have anything in my my affection, devotion, allegiance, attention above Christ. If so, I need to repent from that. But how about sexual immorality? Because we live in a sexual, sex-saturated culture. So how can we live? How can we overcome this temptation to give into sexual immorality? Whether it's pornography or fantasy or actual involvement in a, you know, sex outside of marriage, how can we overcome the devil's temptation to try to get us to participate in that? And he does try to get us to participate in that, but understand why. He wants us to lose our power. He wants to quench Holy Spirit power. That's his goal. His ultimate goal is to get us to walk away from Christ, of course. So how can we walk in holiness in the midst of a sex-saturated society? I want to give you four things I think will be helpful for all of us. Number one, Choose to be honest and confess sexual sin. Some of you carry deep guilt in this area. But nothing anyone in this room or online have, have ever done, nothing is so bad that it, hasn't been, that it can't be covered by the blood of Christ on the cross. But it, we need to confess these sins. We need to be honest before the Lord. 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's something I wish every one of you would do here in this room, every one of you online would do, and that is before the day is over, go into a room by yourself and just pray to the Lord and say, Lord, show me any unconfessed sin in my life. Get out a pad of paper and a pen and just whatever comes to mind, write it down. And then just write, when you're done, write 1 John 1, 9 over top of it. And then just wad it up and throw it in the trash. Cleanses us from all unrighteousness. All right, that's the first thing that we need to do is we need to choose to be honest and confess sexual sin. Number two is choose to accept God's good gift. I mean, God made sex. It wasn't some great mistake that God made after he ran out of good ideas that he came up with this. But some of you, and I've talked to people in church over the years, have been taught that sex is all bad. And the feelings that you struggle with are all sinful. But that's not true. And some of you have been victims of incest or abuse or trauma of one sort or another. And it has, it has significantly affected the way you look at sex, even in your marriage. Some of you that are married. And, and some of you may, may need to talk to someone about that. Let us help you with that. There's healing from that. You need to get to a point where you can honestly say, all of us do, honestly say that, thank you, God, that you gave me a body. Thank you, God, that you made me a man or you made me a woman. Thank you that you gave the human race this capacity for oneness within this covenant of marriage. And sexuality and the gift of sex is a good gift from God. True, it's been perverted by many. It's been misapplied. It's been abused. But God, but what God made and how God made it 
to actually function is a good gift from God. That leads us to number three, how do we walk in holiness in the midst of this demonic temptation for us to give in to sexual morality? Number three is choose to follow God's plan and God's design. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality. What does that mean? That means I will restrict, I will restrict a sexual relationship to the permanent commitment of marriage. Period. God intended that for a husband and for a wife to be committed to themselves permanently. And in that context of that covenant to express their intimacy and love and devotion in a sexual relationship as well. Now, let me give us an important, I think a real important warning here. When you engage in sex, you're not just touching somebody's body, you're touching their soul. That's why there's so much hurt and guilt tied up with sex. Because we have lost this, the holy sense of it. We don't realize that, you know, we are getting our hands, not just on people's bodies, we're getting our hands on their souls. We don't realize that that's why so many people carry around so much hurt and so much guilt from past sexual experiences because it wasn't just physical. And that's why the Bible clearly teaches that sexual intercourse has to be confined to the bonds of marriage. Only then can two actually be one flesh as God designed it. I tell you, all you, you got to do is ask people who are divorced, and they'll tell you that there's nothing as painful as pulling apart two souls that were once united. And if you have sex with someone to whom you're not married, I, just, I, I, I would challenge you, take a hard look in the mirror in the morning afterward and ask yourself how good you feel. Why it is you're feeling so empty? You know Why? Because your soul just got robbed. That's why. See, if there's no commitment, if there's no vow for life, then you have to keep people's hands off your soul. Most people who enter into sexual relationships outside of marriage really are not promiscuous people, not most. They're lonely people. But they quickly discover that sex does nothing for loneliness. Well, there's one more thing, one more choice that we need to really make if we're going to live, you know, in holiness in the midst of this sex-saturated society and overcome these demonic temptations. Number four is choose to maximize your marriage. Sexual fulfillment in marriage, which God designed, is so important that God actually calls it a duty in the Bible. That's why the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses that word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, let's read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm sorry, verse 3 through 5. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we need to make a commitment to maximize our physical relationship and marriage. All us married people in here and online, we need to make that commitment. 
By the way, this happens best when couples are connecting in every way, not just physically. Connecting emotionally. I mean, there's intimacy, there's friendship, there's deep caring, there's playfulness, there's courting. There's all those kinds of things that have to do with love and respect. And then we have a marriage that really is fulfilling and satisfying and also protecting and guarding. Author John Ortberg rightly put it this way, and I quote, he said, If we will acknowledge our fallenness and live in accountability and practice confession, if we'll understand and be grateful for God's amazing gift of sexuality, if we'll resolve to keep God's standard when it comes to sexual behavior, if we'll maximize our marriages as best we can, then the church will be an island of sanity and wholeness in a sea of sexual chaos and pain all around us. Great quote, and I'd add to it, and we'll be able to walk in blessing and in spiritual power. Now, if we don't, if there's some that say, well, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to heed that warning, then Jesus gives a warning to those. Revelation 2.16, Jesus says, Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, if they, they and any of us refuse to repent, then Jesus says he's coming to bring judgment. He's going to deal with it. He's going to come bring discipline. Why? Because he's serious about holiness in his church. Why? Because he's serious about his church being able to walk in power and be overcomers. But then he makes this awesome promise to those faithful. And we want to end with this. Revelation 2.17, to those who are faithful now. He who, has an ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. To him, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So Christ promises three things to the faithful members of the church at Pergamum and to us. First, he says he's going to give hidden manna. And remember, manna was what the bread that came down from God to the people. Probably a metaphor of this feast we're going to have with Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, why do I believe it's a metaphor for that? Because of the white stone. Because the white stone in the Roman custom was they would give a white stone to the winners in the athletic contest. That was they got a white stone and their name was engraved on it. But then that white stone became their ticket to the special awards banquet. And now, that, so we understand how it was used in that culture, and we realize that there is the judgment seat of Christ where we're going to get, be given rewards. But one of the things we're going to be given is a white stone. And on that white stone, there's going to be a new name written on it, the name that the, the, name the Lord gives you, not the name necessarily your mama gave you, but a special name, almost like a pet name, an affectionate name, a name that the Lord sees you, and it's going to be a name you're going to love on that white stone. But that white stone is now your ticket to the special awards banquet because we see that we actually see that the judgment seat of Christ will be rewarded for our faithfulness and the marriage supper of the Lamb are, are happen, I believe, one, one, one right after another. So right after you get your rewards and your crowns and your future assignment, you're getting a white stone with your name, the name that God gave you, a special name, and that gives you entrance into the 
marriage supper of the Lamb where Jesus lifts his glass and we all toast Christ and glory forever and ever. It's a great celebration that we look forward to. That's why I wanted everyone to get a white stone when you came in. I want you, I want you to carry it for at least a week. Carry it in your pocket, carry it in your purse. And every time you reach in and fumble around and fill that stone, I want you to remember, wait a second, that's where I'm headed. And I want to live this day for that day. So it was a great celebration coming. And the more we realize that, the more we're, willing to, we're able to go through and be overcomers to all the ways the devil's trying to get us to back away from Christ. We're like, no, we're going to overcome all those strategies. We're going to stay true to Christ because it's so worth it. So I end with that celebration in mind, but also we're going to end with a celebration. There's something we want to celebrate today, and it's worth celebrating. And so what is that celebration? Well, watch this video, and then I'll explain. Grace Community Church started as a small group Bible study in September 1987. Since that time, Grace has gathered in a home, a community center, two different elementary schools, a shopping center, and finally to 801 West Barden Road. Each move had its challenges, but the last move was by far the most challenging and expensive. In 2006, Grace purchased the property at 801 West Barden Road for $2.6 million. An additional $700,000 had to be borrowed in order to make all the necessary renovations to the property before our opening on Easter Sunday of that year. That meant that we took on the burden of a $3.3 million debt in 2006. It has been our desire to become debt-free as a church as soon as possible so we could free up more money for missions and ministry to the poor. We have prayed and worked hard to get to that place of being debt-free. And today, we have a special announcement to make. As of Wednesday this week, we are debt-free. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, let me tell you why this is worth celebrating. You can be seated. Because some of you are thinking, so what is that to me? Let me tell you why this is worth celebrating. The money that we would have spent on debt, we were, we were actually spending $25,000 a month to deal with this debt. But we decided on Wednesday, Tuesday night at the elder meeting that we are going to pay the last quarter million dollars off Wednesday, and we did. That means the next three months, what we want to do with the extra $25,000 a month we would be spending toward debt, we want to spend on meeting needs around the world, helping the persecuted church, and getting God's word into to people's hands who are yet unreached and never even heard of Jesus. Amen. 
And I want to get even more specific. We're going to do this through our partners that we work with around the world, the ones that we know and that we trust. Let me give you some specifics we're going to do over these next three months. One is for Afghanistan relief. We're going to be able to provide for refugees that are settling in North Texas. Now, there's going to be some five to 7,000 Afghan refugees settled in our area. And we want to be able to reach them. Also in Central Asia, there's Afghan refugees that are pouring in to the, to the uh, Central Asian countries and already source of compassion. One of our ministries is working there, and we want to help them do a greater job with that. In November, we're going to do a, a conference for pastors in Pakistan. Right now, we have 200 pastors. We're going to lead a conference right here in, in November, and we're going to do it live. It's going to be at night here, but in daytime there from this room for 200 pastors. Also, we're going to minister, continue in Turkey, where we're going to minister with the local church and children's ministry led through our partners, Ibrahim and Safat. In Myanmar, we're going to encourage and help the poor and persecuted believers through a pastor tea. And for the Hazda, a small unreached group in Tanzania, we're going to help church planning and begin the scripture translation in their heart language. And for the Taziks in the high Himalayas, our workers who we sent out some 25 years ago are finishing up the New Testament. We're going to cover production and cost for the group. And this people group will have the Bible in their heart and language for the first time in history. Yeah. On, top of, on top of all that, we're going to be able to send to our overseas workers who sometimes are struggling in very tight budgets a very tangible financial one-time gift for each one of them to take off the pressure so they can continue the work. Amen. And then we'll start 2022 with a budget with a lot more money, money for ministries that really matter from 2022 and beyond because we don't plan on borrowing money ever again. Now, it's important for me to point this out. That does not mean some of you are thinking, well, great. I'm glad you're doing so good. I guess I don't need to give anymore. <laughs> See, we don't tithe and give for a budget. We tithe and give to obey the Lord. Amen. And then the elders take the tithe and giving of all of us doing our part and then see how much we can do for the glory of God. Amen. So let me encourage you, keep doing it. And let's all even go further because we're going to have more and more money to be able to do things that really matter and will matter for eternity. So we're going to celebrate a couple ways. First way we're going to celebrate is Grace Cafe across the parking lot is free for everyone today. But also, I want to invite the elder couples that are in the service. You make your way on up to this platform. Any elder couples in here, come on all the way up to the platform. We, we tried it down front, and it kind of was a dud. So I want to get them up here. Y'all come on up and just spread out here in the front. Come on up here. Now, those of you that have taken Financial Peace University, y'all come right up here in the front, all right? Now, one of the things that you do in Financial Peace University, and we've had hundreds of people in our church take it and get debt-free. One of the things they do after they finally get debt-free is they do the debt-free scream. I'm debt-free, okay? Now, we're going to do the debt-free scream in a moment too, but you guys come right up here in the front here. All right, let's see here. Hold it that way. We got, I think we got plenty. Come on up here. Hold it that way. I got one more. Let's see. Okay, guys, we're going we're gonna to do this right. Everybody stand up here for a second. You got one? 
Here, just hold on a minute. Okay. All right, now when, on three, I'm gonna, we're going to yell, we're debt-free on three, and at that same time, these guys are going to do better than first service elders. And they're going to actually pop these things in the air, get the effect. But on three, we're debt-free. Ready? One, two, three. We're debt-free.
All right, guys. Lord, just thank you for what you've done in our, in our families and in this church, in this church family. And, Lord, this, we just celebrate this because you are the provider of all this. Thank you, Lord.